So the question is this. Um, in Bhagwan's teaching, it is said that the ego or jiva is illusory. At the same time, it is often said that a soul will go through sansara, the continual cycle of death and rebirth, transmigration, etc., to which we are supposedly subject in the phenomenal world until we become enlightened. Who we, re who we really are is the non-dual self, the Atman, but because of this covering of ignorance, we believe ourselves to be limited to a separate soul contained in a body and mind. The jiva could thus be thought of as the Atman. Now, if there is just the one non-dual self, the Atman, present in a multiplicity of bodies, exactly what is it that will be reborn if it's not the ego or the jiva? It somehow implicates that there still is some separate thing or some individuality going through multiple lifespans. To me, this idea seems to be contradictory to the teaching of not two, which we all know is the meaning of, of Advaita. Many thanks. Okay. <laughs> um, yes, uh, the jiva, the jiva means ego. Ego is, is completely unreal. It's illusory. So too is the samsara through which it is undergoing. But so long as ego seems to exist, there seems to be samsara. So there's actually no contradiction. Now, our present experience is, uh, I am this person, I am experiencing all this. This is samsara. Samsara is, samsara is what we are experiencing now. So long as we're experiencing anything other than ourselves, that is samsara. Um, and the experiencer of samsara is ego. In fact, in verse 24 of Urujunapdu, Bhagavan says ego is itself samsara. There's no samsara other than ego. So it is the very nature of ego. When we rise as ego, we project a body that we take as ourself. And through the five senses of that body, we project a world and all this. And this is all samsara. And this present life is just a dream. The dreamer of this dream is ego. When one life comes to an end, that's just the ending of one dream. But so long as the dreamer remains, the dreaming will continue. So all this, all this samsara, this cycle of birth and death, this is all true for ego. So long as we rise as ego, we are subject to all this. <clears throat> but... According to Advaita, that is, Advaita means uh, non-duality, but what that is alluding to is there is a statement in the Upanishads that the reality, Brahman, is ekam eva advaitiam. That means one only without a second. So that is what Advaita is saying. So Advaita means not two-ness. There are no two things. There's only one thing. There's no second thing. That is the that is the, uh, what alone is true. That is what alone is real. So how does Advaita account for all this multiplicity? Advaita says all this is vivata. Vivata means it's just an appearance. It's not real. It just seems to exist. So none, this world, this samsara, this bondage, all this, it doesn't actually exist, but it does seem to exist. But in order, so appearance means what's what seems to exist, even though it doesn't actually exist. If you if you see a snake, sorry, if you see a rope and mistake it to be a snake, the snake is illusory. 
It's unreal. Why? Because it doesn't actually exist. What is actually there is only a rope, but there seems to be a snake. So uh, appearance or illusion means what seems to exist, even though it doesn't actually exist. So all this seems to exist. But this is what is taught in Advaita. This is absolutely correct. But Bhagavan makes us think a little deeper. Bhagavan asks us, yes, all this seems to exist, but to whom does it seem to exist? It seems to exist only to us, that is, to us as ego. So it's only in the view of ego that all this multiplicity seems to exist. In sleep, we don't experience any multiplicity because we don't rise as ego. As soon as we rise as ego, all multiplicity seems to exist. It doesn't actually exist. That is why Bhagavan says in verse 26 of Uludunapadu, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. Everything means all phenomena, all this multiplicity. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. This is our experience. In waking and dream, we rise as ego, everything seems to exist. A whole universe full of so many phenomena. It's a different universe in, in waking, a different universe in sleep. But it's, it seems to be the same, but actually they're different. Because what happens in dream doesn't affect what happens in waking and vice versa. So it's actually two separate worlds. But they, they, they both exist only in the view of ego. In, in dream, sorry, in sleep, we don't rise as ego. And there's no multiplicity at all. So what Bhagavan says in verse 26 is our own experience. If ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Ego itself is everything. That is what we experience as all as everything, all this multiplicity, is nothing but ourself. We as, we as ego are seeing ourselves as all this. That is, when we are dreaming, the what is the dream? The dreamer is seeing itself as all the dream. So ego is seeing itself as all this multiplicity. So all this multiplicity is nothing but ego. And then in the last sentence of that verse, verse 26 of Ulinapu, Bhagavan says, Adalal, therefore, Yadu Indu Endru Nagale, investigating what this is alone is overdul Yabamano, alone is giving up everything. What this is means what this ego is. So why is investigating ego giving up everything? Because the nature of ego, as he said in the previous verse, verse 25, the nature of ego is to rise, stand and flourish by grasping forms, by grasping things other than itself. And to, But if it turns its attention back towards itself, it will subside and dissolve back into its source. Tedinal autumn pinnacle. If sort, it takes flight. So since ego will cease to exist if we investigate it, investigating it is giving up everything. Because when ego ceases to exist, everything will cease to exist. So the whole problem, Bhagavan has diagnosed the root problem. The root, the root cause of the whole problem is our rising as ego. It's only in the view of ego but there seems to be all this multiplicity, but there seems to be samsara, but there seems to be endless dreams one after another, but we call so many lives. So all this seems to be true so long as we rise as ego. If we investigate ego and know what we actually are, we will know that we have never risen as ego. There has never been anything. So the ultimate truth, the paramatika satya, is ajata, 
nothing has ever appeared and never nothing is ever uh utpati uh nirodo there's no destruction why na utpati there's no arising um there there's no bondage there's no one in, there's no one bound there's no one seeking liberation there's no liberation nothing what is alone is as it always is that is the final truth but so long as we experience ourselves as i am this little person that is ego and so all this multiplicity seems to exist so there's no contradiction at all the ultimate truth is there's one only without a second all this so all multiplicity is is unreal it's a mere appearance but to whom does it appear only to ourselves as ego if we investigate this ego ego will disappear and everything else will disappear along with it i hope that is an uh, a satisfactory answer to that question just michael one comment um when when there's a story of the elephant and the man says everything is brahman and then the guy stands in front of the elephant and he runs over him and he said afterwards well um everything is brahman so why did i have to get out of the way you remember that story <coughs> yes yes that is so you have to sort of <laughs> yes that, that is someone who with a half baked understanding of a dwaita um was walking down the street saying everything is brahman um uh, and elephant had got out of control and it's mahut who was riding the elephant he was shouting at people get out of the way get out of the way um and uh, the man thought oh, everything is brahman so he did he didn't step out of the way he was knocked over by the elephant and injured then he went back to his guru and said you said everything was brahman and um so i thought the elephant is also brahman and uh, but the elephant knocked me over now i've been injured and the guru said yes and the mahout was also brahman why didn't you listen to the, to the, to the mahout brahman and thereby avoid being uh, injured by the uh, the elephant brahman so yes that is if we don't understand the dwaita properly it's very easy to misinterpret it so many a dwaita is interpreted in many misinterpreted in so many ways in fact nowadays misinterpreting a dwaita has become a regular business it's called neo dwaita it's 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 uh, it's uh, it's making a business of an misinterpretation of a dwaita if we understand the dwaita correctly there is one only without a second and what is that one only without a second patvamasi you are that so since we are the only thing that actually exists we should stop attending to anything other than ourselves because so long as we're attending to other things they seem to exist so if we if we truly believe there is one only without a second that one only cannot be anything other than ourselves because if it's other than ourselves then there are two things so it can only be ourselves therefore we should attend to ourselves stop attending to the world attend to yourself if we attend to ourselves all the appearance of multiplicity will come to an end and the one only the one thing that actually exists alone will remain as it always is uh, so this is the practical application of a dwaita not uh, not going a dwaita is not just a nice philosophy to talk about 
It's not even a nice uh, thing to think about. It's something to be put into practice. Bhagavan's teachings are all about the practical application of Advaita. That is, all these Upanishads have been there for thousands of years. All these uh, commentaries and explanations and all these different interpretations of the Upanishads and Vedanta, they've all been there for a long time. But what is the use of all these things? If we don't apply it in practice, what is the practice? If there is one only without a second, that one cannot be other than ourself. So we should hold on to ourselves and ignore everything else. That is the practical application. Okay, so uh, I'll just go on to the next yes. question. Yes. So this question is, in the path of Sri Ramana, Sri Sadhu Om quotes that the subtler secret of Bhagwan is that, in quotation marks, it is not only that the self does not know other things, but also does not know, but also does not know event itself. Even itself. Uh, but does not know even itself. Yeah. What would be the practical implications of this statement? In other, uh, in other occasions, you have clarified that self-attention is not merely withdrawing our attention from phenomena, but attending to oneself. But how are we to attend to ourselves if we cannot even know it? Uh -huh. Right. Okay. We, as with all things, we need to understand what Bhagavan meant when he said that. It's very easy to misunderstand what he meant that. He doesn't mean, he, Bhagavan isn't saying that our, that our real nature is uh, self-ignorant. That is obviously not what he means. What he means is, I, actually, I mentioned this earlier when I was talking about um, uh, um, this uh, 13th verse and when I was talking about uh, the description of the fourth state, the fourth pada in, um, in the Mandukya Upanishad and what Bhagavan says in, um, in Upadesha India and Uladunapli about that which is the, the awareness that is devoid of knowledge and ignorance of anything else is alone real awareness. In that context, I said, uh, um, <coughs> though our real nature knows itself as it is, it does, it's, knowing ourself is quite different to knowing anything else because knowing anything other than ourself is an act of knowing. There are three things involved. If you know anything, there's the knower, there's the thing known, and the means by which the thing is known. So I see a PC in front of me. The PC in front of me is the object. It is, it is the uh, uh, pramaya. It is the thing that is known. But I who am seeing it are the pramata, the knower. And the the, the Pramana, the means by which I know it is by seeing it. So there's there's a there's a in all knowledge, there's a knower, a thing known, and a means of knowing it. Knowing ourselves is not like that. It's it's a knowledge of a completely different order. That is, how do we know ourselves? Just by being ourselves. Because what we actually are is pure awareness. Pure awareness doesn't know itself as an object. It knows itself just by being itself. So when Bhagavan said that our real nature is such a knowledge but does not even know itself, he means it is an awareness that is aware of itself just by being itself, not by knowing itself. That is, it, it's not an act of knowing itself. That is the significance of what Bhagavan said there. 
So we, we can never know ourselves as an object, but we always know ourselves. Is there ever a moment, whether in waking, dream or sleep, there's never a moment when we are not aware, I am. That awareness I am is the ultimate knowledge. That is the ultimate, that, that is all that needs to be known. But the problem is, on, and that is ever known, but on top of that fundamental awareness, I am, we have superimposed a false awareness as I am Michael, I am Shalini, I am Chris, I am whoever. We, we, we identify ourselves with a certain set of adjuncts, which are all objects. This person I take myself to be, Michael is an object, this body is an object, the, the, the prana, that is all the five sheaths are objects. The, the stool, the, the Anamaya Kosha, the gross body, it's a physical object. It can be seen by anyone. The prana is also physical. Anyone can see the breathing and the heartbeat and everything. And subtler than that is the mind. All, the mind consists of, of perceptions, memories, thoughts, feelings, um, uh, uh, emotions, and so on. These are all objects. Subtler than that is the intellect, the, the the distinguishing, judging, reasoning aspect of the mind. That is also all, all the functions of the intellect are object. Then we know them objectively as something other than ourselves. The, the, the subtlest of all the five sheaths is the Anandamaya Kosha. That consists of vasanas. The vasanas are inclinations. These inclinations are known by us. We know we have an inclination to think about this or to think about that. So these inclinations are objects. So all the five sheaths, everything that we take ourselves to be is just objects. So the subject cannot be, an, the subject always identifies itself with an object, with a set of objects, but it, it is not that set of objects. So we need to distinguish ourselves from the objects that we take ourselves to be. So uh, we, we need to turn our attention back within and hold on to ourselves. Holding on to ourselves means attending to that which we always know, namely I am. So we, we do know I am, but it's not a knowledge. We, we don't know I am. By, they, we don't have to do anything to know I am. We always know I am. The problem is, though we always know I am, we've superimposed all this false knowledge on, on this I am. So in order to why why this false knowledge seems to be holding on to us it's not actually holding on to us we are holding on to it i i am holding on to this person michael as i am michael and and therefore i'm grasping so many other things through the five senses and so many things going on in my mind all these i'm all these objects i'm grasping they are not grasping me so if instead of grasping other things if i grasp myself those other things will drop off because I'm not grasping them. So if we hold on to our own being, to I am, everything else will drop off. When everything drops off, all knowledge in the sense of knowing, of an act of knowing, that all comes to an end. We know ourselves just by being ourselves. That's why Bhagavan says, Tanai iritle, tanai aridlam. Knowing oneself is being oneself. Tani uh, because oneself is not two, there are no two things there. Something a knower and something known. It's one thing. And to know anything else, you need the object, the, 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 the subject, and the means of knowing. In, to know ourself, the subject is ourself. 
the, the, the thing that is known is ourself, and the means of knowing it is ourself. So there's only one. So it is, though it is a knowledge, as Bhagavan says, but oneself is such a knowledge, such an arivu or such a jnana, but does not even know itself. That means it is not an it is not a knowing knowledge, it is a being knowledge, a being awareness, such it. Just, we, we know ourselves just by being ourselves. So it has a, what Bhagavan said there has a very deep meaning, so we, we need to understand it correctly. He, Bhagavan is, is highlighting there, but knowing ourselves is quite unlike knowing anything else. It's not one thing knowing another thing. We know ourselves just by being ourselves. I hope that is a, an adequately uh, clear answer. The next question is, does the cessation of Om result in the infinite silence, Aham? I believe Bhagwan has said attending to Aham is one of the ways to merge in our real nature. I find chanting Om quietens the mind effectively. Is mental chanting of Aham preferred to, mental, to the mental chanting of Om? Uh, yes. Um that is, Om is a very powerful mantra because, as, as I said, Om is, a, Om is a contraction, a subsiding. We go from Oh, Oh, in. So it, it, it has that tendency to bring the mind to a state of subsidence. But far more powerful than Om is I. You can say it in any language. It doesn't matter whether it's aham in Sanskrit or nan in Tamil or I in English or je in French or uh, yo in Spanish or uh, ego in Latin or Greek. It doesn't matter what the language is. The, the first person pronoun is the natural name of ourself that we all naturally refer to ourselves as I. So if we... If we repeat the word I, that uh, if, if you repeat any name, supposing you do start doing japa of, um, of a, a name of God, say Ram or Rama or Krishna or Shiva, whatever name you mention, it brings something to your mind. So if, if you hear the word Shiva, it brings a certain image of your mind to a certain deity. We associate God, Shiva with a certain, either with a linga or with a, um, uh, an ascetic with uh, Jada and the Ganga in his hair and the crescent moon and the snake around. We have a certain image. Or indeed, the, the, the primal form of Shiva is our nature itself. So any name, we, it's, when we, any word you say, it brings a certain object to your mind, even if it's not a name of God, if it's just the name of a... Um, an object. If you say um, mango, it brings a certain object to your mind. If you say car, it brings a certain object to your mind. Likewise, when we say I, it, 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 if, we, if we say I contemplatively, it will draw our attention back to our own being. Because I is the name of our being. It's the name of that fundamental awareness of our own existence we refer to as I. So, the word I can help to draw our attention back to ourselves. So I is a more, is more powerful means of, of bringing about the subsidence of mind than Om. Bhagavan often used to say, um, uh, but what is called I is the elder brother. What is called Om is the younger brother. That is, I comes first, Om comes second. Um, 
and this is explained in so many ways, but uh, I is the natural name of ourself. It's the first and foremost name of ourself. Om is, Om is considered so sacred because it's generally said to be the first name of God. But Bhagavan said, no, even before Om comes I. I is the natural name of God because I is the, the name by which we all refer to ourselves. Whether you are the highest God in heaven or the most insignificant uh, insect, we are all aware of ourselves as I. So when we express, when we refer to ourselves in language, doesn't matter which, what the language is, there's some word in every language that refers to oneself, the first person pronoun. So that is the that is the, the Bhagavan used to say, I is the I or I am is the first and foremost name of God. It's the most powerful name of God. It's the most powerful of all mantras. Because what is the ultimate aim of all these things? The ultimate aim is, as the Manduki Upanishad makes clear, the ultimate aim of Om is is not the first three padas. They are unreal. What is real is only the fourth pada. That is the silence that ends, that, that remains after the, the after the ending of Om. So Om is representing that subsidence from that is ah, it's going outwards. Ooh, it's beginning to subside. Mm, it's the final stages of subsidence. When the subsidence is complete. The silence alone remains. So that is what Om is representing. Yeah. That, re that return from, that is the rising of ego is the expansion. When ego begins to turn its attention back within, that is the withdrawal, the contraction, the subsidence. That is what Om is representing. So Om is a powerful mantra, but more powerful even when Om is I. Because what is the what is the reality that Om is referring to? Om is referring to Brahman. And what is Brahman? I am Atma Brahman. This very self is Brahman. So the, the, if, if we read these, that is, these Upanishads can be interpreted in so many ways. But if we read them very carefully in the light of Bhagavan's teachings, it's clear they're all ultimately pointing us back to the same thing. But it needs for us to turn our attention back to ourselves. Because what is Brahman? What is Om? It's nothing but this very, I am Atma, this very self. In other words, I myself from that. Aham Brahmasmi. Tatramasi. So we, the whole aim of all of Vedanta is to turn our attention back to ourselves. So Om is one means of that, but a more direct means is the mere word I. But it, Bhagavan often used to say, for people who had difficulty grasping what is meant by self-investigation, Bhagavan said, even if you go on saying I, thinking I, I, that is sufficient. Because if you go on thinking I, I, meditatively, contemplatively, that will draw your attention back to yourself. So that is a means by which we can become familiar with what it is to be self-attentive. Once we are familiar with what it is to be self-attentive, then we don't need such aids. Then it, it becomes uh, much more natural for us, that is, we, to turn our attention back to ourselves. We, we, we don't need the support of asking any questions, to whom are these thoughts or anything like that. We don't need to repeat the word I. We can just, but one thing we're always aware of is our own being, I am. We can turn our attention back to ourselves at any time. The problem is we don't have sufficient love to do so. So we need to cultivate that love by patient and persistent practice.
Thank you, Michael. Right. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, right. Just one uh, addition to that question. Is it done with uh, inhalation and exhalation or just aham? There are so many practices recommended. But, but the reason why Bhagavan recommended thinking I-I is uh, in whatever language, in Sanskrit or English or Tamil or whatever, it doesn't matter what language it is, is but the aim of that is to draw our attention to what did this word I refer to? It refers to our own being. So if we start, if we start inhaling and exhaling, or these are unnecessary distractions. It may be useful for some people, but yeah. really ultimately it's better to bypass all these distractions. What is our aim? Our aim is to attend to ourselves. Yeah. The breath, whether it's going inside or outside or standing still, it, it's something other than ourselves. It's anya. We are trying to attend to ourselves alone. And as Bhagavan made clear, if you attend to yourself keenly enough, the breath will automatically subside. That's mm -hmm. why he says in um, in verse 28 of uh, Uladu Napadu, Pechu Muchu Adki Kondu. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's uh, subduing the speech and uh, and uh, breath. How are we to do so? Kunda matial by by that that by that sharp intellect, and that sharp intellect is where it's turning within, facing itself. So, we, but by our turning our attention within, the breath will automatically subside. This is what he says in Upadesha and India and elsewhere. If you can, if you, if you. Uh, restrain the breath, that's a means to restrain the mind. If you restrain the mind by turning the attention within, that's a means to restrain the breath. But restraining the breath is not our aim. Our aim is to know ourselves. If we turn our attention back within, the breath will automatically be restrained. And in the case of Bhagavan, when that fear of death came to him, he turned his attention within so keenly, but the breath completely stopped for about 20 minutes or so. His body was, in some books it's written, he enacted death. He didn't enact death. He actually, the, the body actually died because he turned his attention within so keenly. The body was lying there as a lifeless corpse. If any person had come into the room at that time, mm. they would have seen his, a dead body there. His body was actually lifeless for 20 minutes. But because it was the divine will, there was a there, there was work for that body to do, so the life came back after 20 minutes. Yes, yes. But so if we turn our attention within keenly enough, automatically our breath will stop. But if we stop to see, oh, has my breath stopped yet? Then it'll start again because our attention has come outward. Because the breath is something other than ourselves. Thank you. Thank you very right. much. Well, all thanks to Bhagavan. This is Bhagavan's explanations, not mine. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Right. So the next question is, uh, what role does prayer play in the light of Bhagavan's teachings? I understand that we shouldn't pray for anything from Bhagavan except for egolessness. However, when faced with difficulties in daily life and when it becomes extremely difficult to go on, is it wrong to pray to Bhagwan seeking his help? In this world, the only support I have is Bhagwan. And if I am told you should not ask anything from Bhagwan, who should I look up to for help? If you want to ask for help, 
who else to ask for help? And Bhagavan is the only that is we are sometimes in this life we we are in position where we have to ask other people for help. If we if we have some illness, we have to go to a doctor. The, the doctor has to help us to recover from our illness. If we have um financial difficulties, we may have to go to an accountant. If we have legal difficulties, we may have to go to a lawyer. So we there may be so many circumstances in life when we ask help from others. But the only one who will reliably help us is Bhagavan. So ultimately, to whom else can we ask for help except Bhagavan? The, that is, a, according to external circumstances, if we're sick, we go to a doctor. That's not wrong. But ultimately, whether that doctor is going to help us or not is entirely in Bhagavan's hands. So ultimately, we depend upon Bhagavan. So the, praying to Bhagavan is not wrong. If we if we feel we uh, we we if we feel inclined to ask for anything, ask only Bhagavan. That is the best. But the more our love for Bhagavan increases, the less we will be inclined to ask Bhagavan for this or that. Because does he not know better than we do what we need? So why should we be asking him when he knows better than we? We we may ask him for something which is not actually good for us. And we may think, oh, it, it would be good for me if I have a promotion in my job, or it would be good for me if this were to happen or that were to happen, if my illness were to be removed or something, whatever it may be. We may think certain things are good for us, but it may not be good for us. So rather than ask, telling Bhagavan what we think we need, pray to him, ninishtam enishtam, your will is my will. That is happiness for me. That's how Bhagavan prays in um, in the second verse of Aranacha Patikam. In verse 7 of Aranacha Navamanamale, he sings, Whatever be your thought, do that. In other words, whatever be your will, do that. Uh, my beloved, give me only a surge of love for your two feet. So we don't ask Bhagavan for ultimately we we cease asking Bhagavan for anything except for his love. Because if we have Bhagavan's love, we don't need anything else. That is the that is the ultimate thing to pray to. But, but we we are all we need to understand we are all going through a process, a process of purification, a process of uh, maturing. So the in the past, we we prayed to Bhagavan for whatever we needed. That that uh, that inclination to pray to him for this or that will drop off gradually. So the deeper we go in following his path of self-investigation and self-surrender, the less inclination we will have to pray to him. But so long as we have an inclination, by all means pray to him. But Slowly, slowly, that will drop off. So it's not wrong to pray to Bhagavan. It's not. It, it's better to 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 understand that he knows what is good for us and he is doing what is good for us. So there's no need for us to pray for anything. But that doesn't mean it's wrong to pray. If we feel inclined to pray, let's pray only to him. But the best prayer is praying as he taught us in Akram like and. Uh, Navamani Malai Patikam Ashtakam or in these Aranachastuj uh, Panchakam, he's taught us what it is we should pray for. What it is we should pray for is for 
ever-increasing love for his feet. That means ever-increasing love to turn within and merge back into our heart. So that is prayed for in so many ways in Aksharam Lai and the other hymns. So he, he, he's taught us very well, not only how we should pray, but what we should pray for. We may still have inclination to pray for other things. That's not wrong. But sooner or later, that has to drop off. We, we can't force our, uh, our purification. So if we still have the inclination to pray, by all means pray. Better to pray to Bhagavan than to pray to anyone else. Because we, we need to have that attitude of relying wholly on him. At first, we may rely on him for worldly things, but later we understand he's taking care of everything. So we then rely on him for spiritual things. Even that he's taken care of without our asking him. Why we, why we pray as Bhagavan taught us to pray in Akshramlai is that what Bhagavan prays for in our, in our Akshramlai is what he wants to give us. So by praying for that, we are attuning our will to his will. We are praying to him to give us what he wants to give us, because he knows what, what is best for us. So what he wants to give us is what is best for us. What he wants to give us is annihilation of ego. In other words, he wants to swallow us, because only when he swallows us will we truly be happy and at peace, because then only will we remain in him as him. That is the ultimate aim of all, of, of all prayers to lose ourselves in him, to give ourselves wholly to him, to surrender ourselves. I hope that is an adequate answer to that question. Yes, thank you so much, Michael. So to put it very simply, it's not wrong to pray to Bhagavan for this or that, but it's not necessary. But the more we are loving matures, more we will understand that praying to him is not necessary. Praying to him for anything other than what he wants to give us is not necessary. Yes, after after the instant has passed, when you look at look back at it, what I've asked is incorrect, and what he's done is what I feel happened in the right way. Exactly, exactly. Thank you, thank you so much. Okay, the next question is: Would Michael please uh, speak about reincarnation and n-minded existence? Michael seems to have coined this term, n-minded existence. Bhagwan says we are not incarnate even now, so how can there be reincarnation? And Michael says a body must go with a mind, reflecting Bhagwan's teachings. So, would he please speak about n-minded existence and a proper understanding of reincarnation from Bhagwan's teachings? Um. <laughs> The context in which I mentioned n-minded existence, that is, we talk about embodied existence. Embodied existence in, entails n-minded existence because body and mind always go together. We never experience the body without experiencing the mind, and we never experience the mind without experiencing the body because these are all, the, this five sheaves are one bundle. They all go together. So if, if we well, what, what we generally call embodied existence, we can equally well call unminded existence. That is, by rising as ego, we, we grasp this bundle of five sheaves, called, which Bhagavan calls collectively the body, but which includes all the five sheaves, as ourselves. So, it, 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 in, 
the context of talking about that, I said we can also, we can, what we call embodied existence, we can also call end-minded existence. Um, so, so long as we rise as ego, as soon as we rise as ego, we project a body which we experience as ourself. A body means, as Bhagavan says, a body in this context means all the five sheaves. The body, Udu Panchakosa Udu, as Bhagavan says in verse five of Uludunakli, the body is a form consisting of five sheaves. So, whether in waking or dream, we experience five sheaves as ourself. We experience a body, in that body is not a dead body, it's a living body. So, the, there's the, the the physical form of a body is called the Anamaya Kosha. The life that animates it is called Pranamaya Kosha. We don't also never experience a sleeping body as I. It's always a body that seems to be awake. Even in dream, the body seems to be awake. So the, it, when it's awake, that means the mind, the intellect, and the will are also operating within it. So all these five collectively, we never experience any one of these five sheaths without experiencing all five of them. That's why Bowen says, all five are included in the term body. So uh, whether we call it embodied existence or a minded existence, it's the same. Um, it means the same. Um, the I that takes these five sheaves as itself is ego. Ego is not any of the five sheaves, but it takes all the five sheaves as itself. Um, and these five sheaves, they, they don't exist independent of ego. That is, though Bhagavan says in verse 25 of Uludhanaptu, grasping form, it comes into existence. Grasping form, it stands. Grasping and feeding on forms, it flourishes abundantly. When he says grasping form, it stands, if we read it superficially, we can we could misinterpret this to mean there's a form out there. So as soon as ego rises, it grasps some form. No, in in consider sleep, in sleep. Sorry, consider dream. In dream, as soon as we start dreaming, we're aware of ourselves as I am this body. Where did that body come from? Was that body existing before the dream started? No. As soon as we start dreaming, we project and take a body to be I. That's what he means by grasping form, it comes into existence. Because no form exists independent of ego. As he says in the next verse, verse 26, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. So no forms can exist prior to ego. So when he says Grasping form, it comes into existence. That means as soon as ego rises, it projects and takes a body to be I. Um, so whenever ego rises, it projects a body consisting of five sheaves. So but though ego cannot rise without grasping a body as I, it's not dependent on any one particular body. Now I take this body to be I. In dream, I take some other body to be I. While I'm dreaming, it seems to be the same body. But when I wake up from a dream, that, that is in the dream, my body may have been injured or something. But when I wake up from a dream, there's no injury on this body. Because we, after waking from a dream, we recognize that that dream body, which seemed to be the same as this waking body, was actually a different body. Um, so we always, we, ego never 
can stand for a moment without experiencing a body as I. That's why Bhagavan said, ego is the false awareness, I am this body. In other words, ego is that which is always aware of itself as I am this body. But it's not any particular body, because whenever ego rises, it projects a body. So according to Bhagavan, the whole of our, of our, of our present life, the life of this body, the life of the person we now seem to be, this is all one long dream. Within this dream, there are periods of sleep, and within the sleep, there are other dreams. So those dreams we dream at night are dreams within this dream. The whole of our present life is, is one continuous dream. From the time of birth to the time of death, one dream. But what we call death is just the ending of a dream. That is, when we see other people dying, we see a dead body. But when we die, we don't see any. That is, when you when you wake up from a dream, what has happened to your uh, dream body? Do you worry about whether your relatives have cremated the dream body or buried it, given it a proper burial, whether they did a proper funeral for it? No, the dream has come to an end. It's finished. Likewise, when when this dream when this life comes to an end, this dream is finished. But Though the dream comes to an end, the dreamer doesn't come to an end. The dreaming will, con so long as there's a dreamer, namely ego, the dreaming will continue. So when, when this body comes to an end, when this life comes to an end, the, dream, the ego will continue dreaming other dreams, one after another, after another, after another. That is all that is called reincarnation. There are, of course, many different beliefs about reincarnation. So it's off, the way it's often described in books, as if when the body dies, the soul goes away to some other place, and it waits, and when the body is born, it comes and it enters into that soul. That's all a way of describing it for immature minds. But the more mature explanation is that it's all just a dream. It's not that a baby is born and then a soul comes and enters it. Or, uh, but does, it, does the soul enter the fetus at the time of conception? Or is it one week or two weeks or three weeks after that? Theologians will not argue about these things but it, because they don't understand what it all is. The, dream, the life starts when the dream starts. So um, whether we actually experience anything in the womb or not, who knows? I... I I certainly have no memory of what it was like being in the womb, and I don't think, as far as I'm aware, I've never met anyone who said, oh, it was very nice being in the womb, it was nice and cosy there. We don't remember. So at some point, but we can't say exactly when, this dream has started. When we're dreaming at night, are we able to say when the dream started? If someone asks you in, uh, uh, in, in your dream, when did all this start? You say, well, I was born many years ago, so I've been experiencing this, this uh, same life for so many years, you'll, you'll be thinking. Um, but actually, that dream may have started only two minutes before. But all, all we can say is this, uh, the dream of this life begins when we start dreaming. And it ends when we stop dreaming, this particular dream. But when this particular dream comes to an end, we'll start some other dream. So it goes on and on. So what, are called the, uh, what is called samsara, the, the, the cycle of birth and death, is nothing but a, 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 a seemingly endless sequences, sequence of dreams. The dreamer in all dreams is the same. 
We may not remember the past dreams. Most of us don't remember the past dreams. We don't remember our previous life or the life before that. Sometimes under certain circumstances, people do remember. Sometimes children have some memory of their previous lives. But as a general rule, we forget our previous lives. But it's the same dreamer is dreaming. Just because we have forgotten our dream, when, when I wake up in the morning and I dreamt at night, some dreams I may remember, many dreams I may forget, or I may remember for a, a short while, I mean, it's, it slips from my memory. I, I may think, oh, that was a very interesting dream. I must tell someone about this. But then I, sometimes my mind is, gets absorbed in the waking state, and I quite very quickly forget about that dream. And then I think, oh, there was an interesting dream, but I can't remember what it was now. So the, the, the memories fade, but the dreamer remains the same. So throughout all these lives, there's one dreamer, that one dreamer is ego. So what it is that takes birth is, the, is ego, which is the dreamer. And what does ego take from one dream to another? The only thing it takes with it are its vasanas. And the vasanas are the seeds that are projected as the, as the person that we seem to be and the world in which we seem to, that, that Bhagavan often used to say, for all vishayas, that's all objects or phenomena, are nothing but a projection of our vishaya vasanas. That is our inclination to experience vishaya. Vishaya vasanas means our inclinations to experience vishayas. Our inclinations to experience vishayas are what give rise to the appearance of vishayas. So, Everything is an is a, is a expansion or projection of our share vasanas. So the only thing we take with us from life, one life to the next life, to the next life, to the next life, is our vasanas. Those vasanas are not fixed. The vasanas are, uh, are gradually changing. Over time, things that, uh, that we were inclined towards in the past, we're no longer inclined towards. So the vasanas change over time, but ego remains the same. So ego, it, the nature of ego is to have vasanas, but the vasanas, ego is not the vasanas. So the vasanas will change over time. And as we progress in this spiritual path, our mind is purified. What are the impurities in the mind? It's nothing but the vasanas. So the, the purification of mind simply means the vishaya vasanas become more and more attenuated. They become, they get weakened as the mind becomes purified. And as the vishaya vasanas get weakened, the sat vasana, the liking to turn within, increases. So what is the purpose of all these countless lives is nothing but for the purification of our mind, for us slowly to be weaned off our vishaya vasanas and to cultivate the sat vasana, the love to turn within and to know what we actually are. So I hope that's an adequate answer to that question. I hope there wasn't, well, if there's anything more, please, please ask our boys. The next question is, I recently watched the discussion between Swami Sarvapriyananda and David Chalmers. I think Michael would have challenged Chalmers in a more robust way from a purely Advaitic perspective. For example, Chalmers statement that physicalism has good evidence in its favor. Would Michael please speak about this? Uh, yes, um, someone sent me that uh, that video. I also uh, listened to it. Um, 
there was a lot of discussion about a lot of different ideas, but there wasn't any serious, it, 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 that video wasn't very deep. There wasn't a deep discussion of the merits and demerits of those different ideas. To a certain extent there was, but it didn't really go very deep into it. So one of the things that David Chalmers said in that, but um, he said something to the effect that, uh, but, um, Physicalism is a very powerful metaphysical position, and you, you, we, we can't dismiss it without strong reason. Um, I know the person who is asking this question is someone who, one of the people who said who who pointed out this video to me. He's not the only one. Two friends actually pointed it out, but I had discussed it with him, and as I said, that is physicalism. Physicalism is is a is the metaphysical theory, the it's what is otherwise called materialism, metaphysical materialism. That is the contention, but everything is physical. Ultimately, all things can be explained in physical terms. So, just just like um, all bio biology can be explained in terms of chemistry. And chemistry can be explained in terms of physics. Ultimately, everything can be explained in terms of physics. That, that is the, the, the stance of physicalism. So the physicalists, the majority of modern philosophers are physicalists. They, be, they believe that the, the physical world is all there is. And that they try to explain consciousness as being a part of the, um, as, as they think there must be some physical explanation for consciousness. They, they believe consciousness is something that manifests in the brain. David Chalmers rightly says, no, that, that physics cannot adequately explain consciousness. He admits that. So he's, he agrees, but physicalism is not, a, a ultimately cannot stand. But nevertheless, he said it's a strong, it's a strong point of view. I would strongly disagree with that. I think physicalism is a castle built on sand. That, that is, this is in the light of Bhagavan's teachings. Because as Bhagavan made clear, how can we possibly know that anything exists independent of our perception of it? That is, why do we believe there's a physical world? Only because we perceive it. As Bhagavan says in verse 6 of Uludunapadu, Uluhu Aim Pulangul Uru. The, the world is a form of five sense perceptions or sense impressions. They're untrue, nothing else. That is, what we know as the world is nothing but a collection of sights, sounds, uh, tastes, smells, and tactile sensations. If we remove these five kinds of sense impressions, where is any world? There's no such thing as the world other than these sense impressions. Uh, so Bhagavan goes on to say, uh, since one mind alone perceives the world by way of the five sense organs, is there a world besides the mind? So Bhagavan is saying, well, the world is nothing but a series of sense, of sense impressions, of sight, sound, taste, etc. And, and what knows those five kinds of sense impression of is the mind. So is there any world besides the mind? So according to Bhagavan, there's no world other than the mind. That is, it's only in the view of the mind that the world seems to exist. So Bhagavan, this is what is called, the, the technical term in philosophy for this is drishti shrishti vada. 
that is there, there are two uh, two alternative views. There's Shristi Drishti Bada or Drishti Shristi Bada. According to Shristi Drishti Bada, the world is first created, that's Shristi, and then we see it, that's Drishti. That is all of all of science is based on that uh, belief. Most religions are based on that belief. Most philosophies are based on that belief. But what Bhagavan taught us is the opposite of that, Drishti Shristi. According to Drishti Shristi, there is no creation independent of the perception. So why does the world seem to exist? Because we see it. In, and that is illustrated by dream. In dream, we see a we see a, a world just like this world. It, it consists of five kinds of sense impression, and um, it's uh, substantively the world we experience in dream is no different to the world we experience in waking state. There may be some qualitative differences, but there's no substantive differences. So, does the world we experience in dream exist independent of our perception of it? Was the world there before we perceived it? No. It, the world in, in a dream seems to exist only because we perceive it. In other words, it exists only in our perception. It has no existence independent of our perception of it. So why should we think the world has any, this present waking world has any um, existence independent of our perception of it? The only evidence we have for the existence of the world is that we perceive it. So all we can all we can justifiably say about the world is not that the world, the physical world. All we can justifiably say about it is that it seems to exist. We cannot. We have no reason to suppose that it actually exists. So it just seems to exist in our view. So since there is no evidence that the physical world exists at all, or exists independent of our perception of it. How can we base any metaphysics that is based on the assumption that physical things are, are fundamental? Is as I said, it's a castle built on sand. It has got, it hasn't got a leg to stand on. Because there's a general consensus that the physical world does exist. Because we all, uh, generally, we all agree. Oh yes, there's a physical world. So we believe. Oh. I'm not the only one who believes in this physical world. Everyone believes in this physical world. But the, all the other people who believe in the uh, existence of a physical world are themselves a part of a physical world whose existence is in question. So as Bhagavan said, calling upon the, the testimony of others to, uh, to, uh, to support, the, to, to justify belief in the reality of the world is like calling on the testimony of a of a thief to, to testify that he's innocent. Of course, the thief will say, yes, I'm innocent. Likewise, the world will always say, no, I, I do actually exist. The world will always tell us. But does it actually exist? It exists only in our view, only in our perception. Um, if you ask people in dream, does this world exist? When I was asleep, does this world exist? They'll say, yes, of course, this world existed. Whether, you're, whether you see it or not, this world always exists. People in dream will tell us, and in dream that will seem to be very, we, we will be impressed by that. We will believe them. Yes, these people said they saw the, this world when I wasn't, when I was asleep, so it must have existed then. But when we wake up from a dream, we, we find those people who testify that the world existed uh, when we were asleep, 
were themselves a part of that world, and but that was all only in our own mind. So from the perspective of Bhagavan's teachings, the, this physicalism, which is the main metaphysical, that, that is it, the most fashionable metaphysical theory, it hasn't got a leg to stand on. And all, even those philosophers who are not out-and-out physicalists, they still um, have great deference to this um, to this. Uh, to the physicalist view. David Chalmers is a philosopher who is very famous for having coined a term, the hard problem of consciousness. That is what he said is, neuroscience and science may be able to solve so many of the easy problems of consciousness, such as how we perceive the red color is red or how that it, it may they may be able to solve so many problems about uh, the nature of consciousness actually it's not the nature of consciousness it's the nature of what we experience in consciousness that is the redness of an apple is 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 an object of consciousness it's not consciousness itself but that's beside the point but anyway he said all the the, the usual problems everyone is concerned with, these are all easy problems. The hard problem is how to account for a, a consciousness in the first place. How is it that this, but, but what is going on in the brain produces certain experiences, like, um, like uh, uh, um, uh, sight, sounds, tastes, emotions, feelings of beauty, of love, of um, right and wrong, all these, all these are mental judgments. How do all these, these experiences of this is, this is beautiful, this is ugly, this is right, this is wrong, this is, I like this, I dislike this, I love this, I hate that. How does all this arise out of what's going on in the brain? That is, there's, there's no, there's an explanatory gap, as it's sometimes said. What is, whatever may be going on in the brain may correlate to certain experiences we have, but it doesn't adequately explain why we experience it as we experience it. So David Chalmers said, this is the hard problem of consciousness. But from the perspective of Bhagavan's teachings, there is no hard problem of consciousness, because there's a hard problem of consciousness only if you accept that the physical things are fundamental. If you think that the consciousness is something that, that depends upon the brain, then it's difficult to explain it. But According to Bhagavan, according to Advaita, the fundamental reality is pure awareness. From that pure awareness, there's a, a, an adjunct-bound awareness called ego. It rises as I am this body. And only in the view of that adjunct-bound awareness do all other things seem to exist. So the, the problem in Advaita is not how to explain consciousness, how to explain the appearance of multiplicity. Bhagavan explains it very simply. It's all nothing but the mind. It's all, the world is nothing but thoughts. It all appears only, that is, it's all the, a projection of, uh, of ego. It all appears only in ego's view. It has no existence independent of ego. So if we investigate ego, ego will subside back into its source and pure awareness alone will remain. So, um, though David Chalmers is a lot better than a lot of other philosophers, he, he's, he's, a, 
he's he's not ready to buy into physicalism wholly. He still hasn't uh, rejected it wholly. He's still trying, seeking some sort of compromise. Whereas uh, in Advaita, there's no room for compromise. The world, the physical world is nothing but a mental projection. It's nothing but a dream. It exists only in the mind. It has no ex existence independent of our perception of it. I, I hope that's an adequate answer to that question. So yes, if I if if I have been engaged in that uh, discussion with uh, with um, either Swami Savapriyananda or uh, David Chalmers, I would have uh, I would have questioned much more deeply. To, I would have questioned the basis of what they what they were saying. Is it is what are, our, are is what we are saying? Is it justified? For example, another thing that he said in that video is Swami Sabapriyananda says that in David Chalmers' latest book, he talks about re how we can judge something as real. And he gives some five definitions of, 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 uh, of five or seven definitions of what is real. And one of them is the fact that we see things means they're real. So whether David Chalmers actually contends that or whether he put that forward as a as a possibility, I don't know, but that is just because we see something doesn't mean it's real. In Bhagavan's teachings, what is what is meant by real? What is meant by unreal? What is real is what actually exists. Whatever doesn't actually exist but merely seems to exist is unreal. So, what is real is only ourself, the pure awareness I am. Everything else is unreal because it, though it seems to exist, it doesn't actually exist. So just because you see something doesn't make it real. All, all you can say is it seems to exist. You can't say that it actually exists. So there's, there were so many things in that video, but when I listened to it, I thought there's so many things that could have been, uh, that could have been questioned, which would have led to a far more interesting discussion than merely talking about, uh, this idea, Sankhya says this, um, physicalism says that, comparing Eastern philosophy, Western philosophy, ancient philosophy with modern philosophy. This is all, this is all just tinkering on the surface. But we, we, Bhagavan's philosophy is the deepest, it's the simplest philosophy of all, but it's also the deepest philosophy of all. So if we, if we want to be philosophical, we need to be, go into it very deeply because only by, by questioning things deeply do we come to the ultimate question, who am I? And that ultimate question, who am I, can be solved only by turning our attention within to investigate ourselves, as Bhagavan has made clear. And only when that fundamental question is solved will all other questions be solved. Well, Michael, we have three more questions. Okay. Uh, I'll try and finish in the next uh, 10, 15, 10 minutes. Uh, the next question is, we are taught that God as the ordainer is devoid of any volition or intention and aware only of himself as a fundamental awareness, I am. But it is also said that he selects from the heap of sanchita for each soul the adequate amount of fruits prarabdha karma, to be experienced by us as ego. However, making such selection requires the knowledge of us as an individual soul in our limited mind-bound state and adjunct, and adjunct conflated awareness, I am this body. 
If God is aware only of himself as infinite pure being, how can he select the amount of our prarabdha without knowing our level of unripeness? Or does this selection happen in the sense of verse 15 in Nanyar, by just Bhagwan's presence or grace? Uh, yes, <laughs> um, that there is a connection between them that, that we need to understand a bit more deeply. That is, God or Bhagavan knows everything in the sense that he knows the reality of everything. So he knows us more than we know ourselves because we know ourselves as a person. He knows us as we actually are. So in a certain sense, we can say he knows everything because he knows the reality of everything. He doesn't know everything as everything. He knows everything as I, as just his own being. Um, so that is with our small intellect, we cannot, we, obviously we cannot understand God adequately. As Bhagavan says, sings in this verse, Unaya Aribaya who can know you? So we, with our small mind, we cannot know him adequately. We, if we want to know him, we need to surrender this mind completely to him. The mind needs to be swallowed by him. Then only we, can we know him. But we can, we can answer this question, a question such as this to a certain extent. That is, um, how, yeah, th this is where verse, uh, the 15th paragraph of Nana comes in. That is what Bhagavan says in the 15th paragraph is by the Eastern Sanidana Visesha Matratal. That means by the mere special nature of his presence, of, of the presence of God, everything, all the all the panchakritias, the creation, sustenance, destruction, um, tirodhana, the veiling, and the grace, all are happening by the special nature of his presence. That is, by his mere being, everything is going on. So how to understand this? His being, firstly, is, is chit. That is, sat is chit. So his being is pure, is pure awareness. And his... It, it is also not only infinite love, I mean, infinite happiness, it is also infinite love. That is, the very nature of God is love. Why? Because he alone exists. So he, the, his nature is to love himself. And since in his view, there is nothing other than himself, he loves everything as, him, as himself. So Bhagavan loves us as himself. So that infinite love that he has for us as, himse as himself is what we experience as his grace. So by the, the very fact that his being is itself infinite love, by his mere being as he is, everything happens as it's meant to happen. So the, Bhagavan isn't sitting there with a, with a supercomputer calculating every action we do, allotting appropriate, um, calculating what is the appropriate fruit for each action. It's not like that. It's not like a, a computational or a mental uh, activity. Merely by his being, the infinite love that he actually is, everything happens as it's meant to happen. So by his mere, his mere nature as pure infinite love, Everything is happening as it's happening. So the fruits of our, that is in the beginning of Upadeshundia, 
Bhagavan can uh, repudiate a contention of um of Purva Mimamsa. According to Purva Mimamsa, uh, actions give fruit automatically. That is, if, if you do a certain action, it has to give a certain fruit. So it's the actions themselves that give fruit. Um, so according to Purva Mimamsa, there's no God higher than, um, than karma. That is, so in... Um, when Murugana was telling the story of the Darakvana rishis, who were Purva Mimamsakas, he said they are following the, uh, the, the path of Purva Karma. Purva Karma means the, the Vedic path uh, of, of Karmiya Karma, as, as, as expounded in Purva Mimamsa. And he said, um, because of their pride, they believed uh, Karma Tayandri Kadavalilei. There's no God except karma. And because of that, they, they became so proud, their garavam, their pride became so excessive that they were heading for their downfall. So she became in the form of uh, a mendicant in order to um, set them on the right path. And the teaching Shiva gave is Upadesha India. So that is the context in which Bhagavan gave it, in which Bhagavan gave these teachings in Upadesha India. So he begins by repudiating that view of Purva Mimamsa, but karma gives fruit automatically. Bhagavan says, karma giving fruit is by the ordainment of God. Uh, that is, karma payantaral kartana danayav. Karma giving fruit is by the ordainment of God. Or in Sanskrit, he says, Kartaragnya prapyade palam. The fruit are given according to the ordainment of God. Then he asks, uh, Karma kim param. Is, is karma God? Or in Tamil, he says, Karmam kadavlo. Is karma God? Karmam jadamadal. Because karma is insentient. What he means by that, why he's emphasized that karma is jada, is Karma cannot give its own fruit. If you do an action, how can, how can that action itself determine its own fruit? It can't. Improving the mamsa, because they're faced with this problem of how to, if, if I do a certain yaga or yagna now, how does that give me pleasure in heaven in the next life? How a Purvamamsa has to explain that. So they they posit something called Adrishtam. Adrishtam means something unseen. There's something unseen that creates that connection. But th that that is that is that idea of adrishtam is actually just a cop-out because they can't explain it. They say it's something unseen. But according to Vedanta, there is, it, it is not what what allots the fruit of the karma is God alone. God alone can determine which action. Uh, which fruit is appropriate for which action, and not only which fruit is appropriate for which action, when, where, and how is the appropriate time to experience that fruit. So our prarabdha, what we are experiencing as our destiny in this lifetime, is a selection. We, In the past, we have done innumerable actions. Those, the fruit of those actions are stored in sanchitta, so because every lifetime we're doing more and more actions, we, ex we accumulate more fruit than we exhaust. So Sanchitta is a vast heap of un unexperienced fruit. So from that vast heap, God selects 
which fruit are appropriate for us to experience in this lifetime. So when it is said like this, we may think it may give us the impression God is sitting there calculating each and every action, what is the appropriate fruit and everything, but it is not so. How God does this merely by being as he actually is, by his mere, when Bhagavan says by his the special nature of his presence, that means by his mere being, by his being as he is, because what he is, is infinite love, and infinite love will always do what is good. So it, it all happens, um, we can't say it happens automatically, because it's not happening automatically, it's not the karmas that are giving fruit, but by his grace, it is all happening as it should happen. So whatever fruit we now experience, we say that is the will of God. Bhagavan often used to say, whether you call it prarabdha, that means destiny or fate, or the will of God, it's the same thing. Because the, whatever be your destiny, it is the fruit of your past action that have been selected by God for your benefit. So it is his will. So whatever we experience is his will. That doesn't mean that he actually has a will. What it means is, or we need to understand it, when we talk about God's will, we need to understand more deeply. What is his will? His nature is infinite love. He loves us as himself. So does he want anything for us? Yes, he wants us to be as we actually are, because what we actually are is infinite happiness. So he wants us to be happy. So if at all he has a will, his only will is that we should be happy. And the means by which we are happy, in order to, to mature us and bring us to the point where we are willing to surrender ourselves to him, he allots the fruit of the karmas in such a way to, that will be conducive to the purification of our mind and thereby for us coming to this for our, thereby coming to this spiritual path of self-investigation and self-surrender. So that is the ultimate aim of the whole that that's what it's all leading up to. All that is happening by his mere presence, by his mere being, because he is infinite love. So we we can understand this much. We can't understand beyond this, and we need not understand beyond this. What we need to understand is that when you do an action, the fruit is out of your hand. The fruit is in God's hand. So leave the fruit to him. Uh, Ramanapanam, we offer it to God. Ishwarapanam, we, we offer all the fruit of our actions to God. Because whether we offer them or not, he's, they're all in his hands. Once we do an action, it's out of our hands. If, you, if you're shooting an arrow, so long as you haven't shot the arrow, you can decide where to aim it. Once you've released the arrow, it's out of your hands. If you misaimed it, it's going to hit the wrong target. So you, you, you cannot, we, we, before we act, it's up to us whether we do the action or not. Once we've done the action, the fruit is out of our hand. The fruit is entirely in his hand. So whatever fruit we experience, that is his will. And he allots the fruit in the way that will be most conducive to our spiritual development. That, if we understand that, that's all we need to understand. We, don't, we, we shouldn't try to break our head trying to understand more, because firstly, it's not possible, and secondly, it's not necessary. But whatever Bhagavan taught us, we need to understand why he taught us. It has a limited purpose to make us understand that whatever is happening to us, it's all his will, so we can leave 
Our external life, we can leave it entirely in his hands. Our only concern should be to turn within. That is what we should understand from all this. That is the takeaway. So or we should understand not only what Bhagavan has taught us, but why he's taught us. And we shouldn't try to understand things which are unnecessary to understand. Otherwise, we're allowing the intellect, that is property, that is allowing the intellect to go outwards. That's, un, that's not our job. We are here for nibriti, for withdrawing back within. Sorry, that was a rather long answer to that question, but uh, it required uh, a longer answer. So the next question is, uh, could you please elaborate, no, um, can I read this one first? Can the purification process and persistent self-inquiry cause changes in the body and perception as your perception is no longer going outwards? Also, did Bhagwan ever talk about Kundalini? Um, regarding changes in perception, what we, that is whatever we perceive, is what is we are destined to experience. So uh, our, our, our practice of self-investigation and the resultant purification of mind will not change our destiny. But the difference it will make, it will, that is, we, Bhagavan often used to say, prarabdha affects only the outward going mind. It can never prevent us turning the mind within. If we turn our mind within, we won't experience the prarabdha because we experience the prarabdha only so long as we're looking outward. So the more we look within, the less we are affected by prarabdha and the less we will be concerned about it because we become more and more detached from the person we seem to be. So but it won't change our destiny. It will change our attitude towards our destiny. We will cease to be concerned about it because we'll be concerned only with looking within. And to the extent we look within, to that extent, we won't even notice the destiny. We can experience the destiny only when we're looking outwards. Destiny can't stop us looking inwards. So in that sense, we are not bound by our destiny at all. We are always free to turn within. Uh, and uh, uh, the other question about Kundalini, uh, Bhagavan may have said things about Kundalini, but we really need not go into that. I mean, all the yogic ideas can be in explained in terms of Vedanta. But what is the point? That is, Kundalini, if, if Kundalini is something other than ourselves, we need not know about it. Because it need not concern us. We are not here to know about other things. We're here to know only ourselves. If Kundalini means ourself, then know yourself and you know Kundalini. That's all we need. So there are so many yogic concepts, Kundalini, Samadhi, this, that, and everything. We need not be concerned about that. If these things, all these yogic ideas, if they're anything other than our real nature, we are not we we need not be interested in them we need not be concerned about them if they're our real nature we still need not be concerned about them because our only aim is to know our real nature if samadhi is something other than what we are we need we need not be interested in samadhi if samadhi is our own real nature we will know samadhi by knowing our own real nature likewise with kundalini and with all other yogic ideas so there's so many ideas Kundalini, Nadis, chakras, all these things. 
these these oh, well, I'll, I'll tell one small incident that happened. Um, Suri Nagama recorded this. I don't think it's in letters, but it must have been in some something. But I remember it was once many, many years ago, back in the 70s or 80s. It appeared in the Mountain Path as a filler. That's at the end of an article, a half-page filler. Uh, one incident recorded by Suri Nagama. That is, once some learned pundits came to Bhagavan, and for two, two or three days, they were discussing with Bhagavan about Kundalini and Nadis and chakras and all these things. Suri Nagamoy was listening to this, but it was all Greek and Latin to her. She didn't understand what it was all about. So she felt a bit dejected, but she wasn't uh, so learned to understand all these things because Bhagavan seemed to be answering all these questions. So she thought it must be something important. So when those pundits finally went away and uh, um, Suri Nagama approached Bhagavan and said, Bhagavan, you were talking about all these things, uh, this yoga and this kundalini and this nadis and chakras and all these things. I don't know anything about these things. I couldn't understand any of what you were saying. So can you explain all this to me? And Bhagavan said, oh, that... Why should you worry about that? It's all just uh, its all just an imagination. It's all just a karpana. And she said, what? It's all just a karpana? And Bhagavan said, when the body itself is a karpana, when the body itself is a mental fabrication, all these nadis and chakras and um, kundalini, they're all in the body. So they must also be. So Bhagavan dismissed it all. So these are not things that we need to be concerned about. For those who are interested, Bhagavan could explain all these things, and he no doubt the explanations he Bhagavan gave those pandit were useful because indirectly it would have been turning them towards something deeper. So I'm sure Bhagavan was Bhagavan spent his time answering their questions and explaining things in a language that they understood for their benefit. But for us, we need not be concerned about these things because as Bhagavan said to Suri Nagama, it's all just Manokarpana. According to Bhagavan, the whole universe, everything, all phenomena are just Manokarpana. They're just mental fabrications. They have no, it has no reality. The only, according to Bhagavan, what is real? Uh, as he says in um, Nana, Yatatamai Ulludu Apmasarupamondre. What actually exists is only Apmasarupa. That means only the real nature of ourself. And as he says in Ulludunapdu, verse 13, uh, uh, oneself who is awareness, who pure awareness, jnana there means pure awareness, oneself who is jnana alone is real. So we need not know about anything else. All we need to know about is ourself. And in the next verse of that same, next sentence of that same verse 13 of Uludnapti, Bhagavan says, nana vam jnanam agnanamam. That means knowledge of multiplicity is ignorance. So why to know about all these things? If we know about ourselves, that alone is real knowledge. Knowing anything else is ignorance. As simple as that. Was there another question, Shalini? Um, the last question, uh, um, Michael, um, and I think we'll have to be quick about this uh, because uh, we're running out of time. Could you please elaborate in more detail how Neo-Advaita misinterprets the classical teachings? 
<laughs> I don't know much about Neo Advaita, but um, but firstly, that that is very unfairly. Uh, um, People believe they, there's a, a wrong belief that Neo Advaita has been spawned from Bhagavan's teachings. That is because some people have misrepresented Bhagavan. It has Neo Advaita is the diametric opposite of Bhagavan's teachings because Bhagavan, the what is the, the, the main aim of Bhagavan's teaching is to teach us what is the practical implication of all Vedanta. The practical implication is that there's one only without a second, Ekameva Dvaitiam, and what is that one? Tatvamasi, you are that. Since we are that, what we should investigate is ourselves. So Bhagavan, Bhagavan came to highlight what is the practical implication of all of Vedanta. And that's what Bhagavan's teachings are all about. It's all about practice. It's all about the practice of self-investigation and self-surrender. Neo-Advaita, on the other hand, is quite the opposite. Neo-Advaita says, oh, there's no ego, your, your awareness, there's nothing to be done, they give up the search, or they say all sorts of things. These pe- Some of these people who are saying these things claim to be followers of Bhagavan. They haven't even begun to uh, understood Bhagavan. They say, call off the search. That is, uh, I think that, um, what's his name? That uh, Punja, the person who called Papaji, as they call him. One of his things was, call off the search. Because he said, there's nothing to be done. You're already that, something like that. I, I don't know much about him. But, but that itself is an impractical teaching. Because if you, you are told, call off the search, what would be the result? The very nature of ego is to be always searching for happiness. If we stop searching for happiness inside, which is what Bhagavan tells us to do, we'll start, we'll return to searching for happiness outside. So we shouldn't call off the search until the searcher has been destroyed. So there's so many things in Neo-Dvaita. Basically, it is trivializing Advaita. And uh, most important, I mean, most seriously of all, is trivializing Bhagavan's teachings, which are the most practical form of Advaita. Bhagavan came to emphasize what is the practice of Advaita, and basically, uh, the Neo-Advaitins are saying, there's no practice, you need not do anything, you're already that. So, they, it's, it's, it's a... It's a half-baked understanding of Advaita, half-baked understanding of Bhagavan's teaching. They may... They may um, say things that Bhagavan said. Like Bhagavan said, there's no ego. Ego is unreal. So they, they, they latch on to such ideas without understanding them in the context. Bhagavan's whole teachings are based on the fact that ego is the root problem. Yes, ultimately ego is unreal. There's no such thing as ego. But you cannot... That is what we, in order to, to be able to say that, we need to investigate ourselves and actually see that there's no such thing as ego. So long as we're aware of anything else, who is aware of it? It's only ego. So they, they, they cherry pick uh, uh, aspects of Bhagavan's teachings, uh, present them out of context, and uh, trivialize the whole thing. And um, basically, their, their main thing is, uh, you're already that. All you need to see is that you're that. There's nothing you can do about it. Either you see it or you don't see it. If you're like me, I've seen it. 
But if you do, if you don't see it, then you're just ignorant. I mean, all and they all most of these neo advaitin these so-called gurus, they all claim I am self-realized, which is quite against Bhagavan's teaching because according to Bhagavan's teaching. Uh, Bhagavan says in Uladunapadu, it's a matter of ridicule, either to say I have known myself or I have not known myself. Why? Because we always know ourselves. And so to say I've not known myself is false, because what is there to know? Only to know our being. Our being, we always know our being as I am. The problem is not that we are lacking knowledge, but that we, on on top of the real knowledge, I am. We superimpose so many, so much unreal knowledge. We have to remove the unreal knowledge. That is what the uh, teaching is all about. So to say I do not know myself is false. To say I know myself is also false because who is the I who say I know myself? But one, are there two selves for one self to be an object known by the other self? So. These people who claim I have known myself, it's clear they haven't known anything. Because as uh, I, in the, when I was talking about uh, that verse 13 of, of Akshramurai, in which Bhagavan ends by saying, who can know you are an actual? I quoted a verse but of Sadhuam from, um, from Aranatya Bemba, in which he said, um, that his his English poetic translation is a naked lie. Then it would be if any man were to say that he realized the self diving within through proper inquiry set in, not for knowing but for death. The good for nothing ego's worth. Tis Aranachala alone the self by which the self is known. So this ego is never can never be self realized. The ego can only be swallowed, and when ego is swallowed. Who is there to say I am self-realized? So all these, all these um, self-realized um, neo-advaiting gurus, they have they have not understood Bhagavan at all. They've not understood Advaita at all. So it's a total. Though it's called neo-advaita, it is not Advaita at all. It is. It's. It's. Uh, it, it's just, it's trivializing the whole thing. And they make it sound like it's a very easy thing. All you need to see is that uh, I am awareness. It's not just, I mean, yes, we, all we need to see is to see ourselves as we actually are. But seeing ourselves as we actually are is, is, so long as we have liking to go outwards, we cannot see what we actually are. So this uh, practice is necessary. Patient and persistent practice over many years, many lifetimes, whatever, however long it takes, we have to continue until we are willing to surrender ourselves completely. So uh, Neo-Advaita is a complete misrepresentation of Bhagavan's teachings and of Advaita. I, the details of Neo-Advaita I don't know. Oh, I just pick up some of the sound bites that the, these people... Um, these people uh, parrot away, but um, I know enough about a neo-advaita to know it's nonsense. Om namo bhagavate sri arunachala ramanaya